Welcome to episode 17 of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. Happy Friday. It was Groundhog Day yesterday, which in Florida we mock a little. Because here there is no such thing as six more weeks of winter. Six hours, maybe. Six days if we're unlucky but six weeks that's for other states that's for the sort of states where people wear coats and wool hats and shoes my guest today is paul gregory who well who knew lee harvey oswald the man who killed jfk Paul and I talked about how they met, what he was like, about why the many conspiracy theories that sprung up afterwards don't make sense to him, and about why he chose now, 60 years later, to start talking about his experience. But first, I want to talk about constitutional carry, or permitless carry. In particular, I want to push back against the idea that refusing to require American citizens to apply for permits before they're allowed to carry their legally owned firearms is some sort of unhinged or radical move. So as you may have read, the Florida legislature is currently preparing a bill that would make concealed carry permits optional in the state. Now, given that Republicans have supermajorities in the state House of Representatives and in the state Senate, and given that the governor has said he'll sign any bill that comes out of the legislature that makes concealed carry permits optional, it looks likely to pass. And as a Florida voter, I think that's good. In my view, concealed carry permits, while constitutional, are a form of prior restraint on a constitutional right. And being the plucky little libertarian that I am, I oppose prior restraint on constitutional rights. Suffice it to say, though, the press, both national and here in Florida, does not see this the same way. Since the news that this would be considered in the upcoming session broke a few days ago, I've read quite a few pieces on Florida's bill, and I'm still yet to find one that doesn't either cast the move as a crazy experiment or contain quote after quote after quote that has absolutely nothing to do with the proposal at hand. So I thought I would do a little explainer 
about what constitutional carry or permitless carry is and why it doesn't bother me. Simply put, the bill that Florida has proposed would allow Floridians who are legally eligible to own and carry a firearm to carry a firearm in the state without first applying for a permit. That's it. That's all it does. If it passes, those who still want a permit can get one. Usually people do that so they can carry in states that require non-residents to show a permit, but there are other reasons, perhaps. And those who don't want to do that would not have to. It would not change who is eligible to own or carry a firearm. The same people who were prohibited from doing so beforehand would be just as prohibited afterwards. It would not abolish or change the federal background check system in Florida, which must be used for every commercial sale and every sale that crosses state lines, irrespective of state law. It would not change where Floridians can carry firearms, and it wouldn't allow them to carry firearms unconcealed, which is also known as open carry. And for goodness sake, it would have absolutely nothing to do with mass shootings. Pretty much every objection to the bill I've seen mentions the mass shootings at Pulse and Parkland and implies, or says outright, that this bill might make such atrocities worse or more likely. But it's impossible to see how it could. Leaving aside that those incidents involved rifles and not concealable handguns, what exactly is the theory here? That there are hundreds of people in America right now intent on mass murder who are being kept from doing so by the rules that require them to apply for a concealed carry permit? Come on! It's silly. And then there's crime. Now, I keep seeing claims that permitless carry leads to an increase in crime. But that doesn't seem to be what the data shows in either direction. According to the RAND Corporation, which frequently reviews all the literature in this area, I'll quote, Permitless carry laws have uncertain effects on total homicides. Evidence for this relationship is inconclusive. So why have the permits? Now, I accept this question will yield different instincts in different people. Legitimate instincts. Some people will say, if it's inconclusive, let's not rock the boat. I would say the opposite. If it's inconclusive, then... There's no reason for the government to limit access to a constitutionally protected individual right by imposing time and money costs before that right can be used. But either way, we might want to dial down the hyperbole a bit. Again, the RAND Corporation says, 
permitless carry laws have uncertain effects on total homicides, evidence for this relationship is inconclusive. At root, this is a paperwork change. This is an alteration to the bureaucratic process. Beforehand, Floridians needed a piece of paper. Afterwards, if it passes, they won't. Which actually is the norm in America. If Florida does make this change, it will become the 26th state to do so. The others are Vermont, Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, Indiana, Maine, Kansas, Mississippi, Iowa, Kentucky, Idaho, Georgia, Montana, New Hampshire, Missouri, North Dakota, Ohio, Tennessee, Oklahoma, Texas, South Dakota, West Virginia, Utah, Alabama, and Wyoming. That's quite the collection. And as a matter of fact, if and when Florida adds its name to that list, it will be the states that do not have permitless carry that will be in the minority. So I can understand why in 2003, when Alaska announced that it was going to become the second permitless carry state after Vermont, which has always been one, some people expressed reservations. And I can understand why in 2010, when Arizona joined Alaska and Vermont, there was some trepidation. But now, now, two decades later, when the system has been employed by all sorts of different states, rural, urban, big, small, northern, western, southern, I find the intensity of the pushback somewhat odd. We do, of course, have many problems in the United States with crime that is committed by people with firearms. But those problems have nothing to do with legal concealed carry. In fact, if you're serious about reducing crime, the last thing you would do is go after legal concealed carriers. People who, as we've learned from the statistics out of Florida and Texas, are on average about six or seven times more law-abiding than the police. Concealed carriers are a complete non-factor in American crime. And when they do surface at all in connection, they tend to be a mitigating rather than an aggravating force. This sounds a little simple, but by and large, it's true to say that the sort of people who do not pose a threat to anyone else have no need of strict laws governing their conduct, while the sort of people who do pose a threat don't actually care what those laws say in the first place. So why have the laws? Again, we're not talking in generalities here. We're talking only about the paperwork 
related to concealed carry. If Florida makes its change, nothing else will be altered. Not the who, not the where, not the when. The purchasing process stays the same. The behavioral rules stay the same. The fines and penalties for abuse stay the same. Everything stays the same except for the permission slip. And in this case, that's fine with me. Well, my guest today is Paul Gregory, who's written a fascinating book titled The Oswald, about Lee Harvey Oswald and his wife Marina Oswald. Paul actually knew both of them and knew both of them before the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So, Paul Gregory, welcome to the Charles C. W. Cook podcast. Hello, I'm glad to be here. All right, so I just read your book. I couldn't put it down. I read it over the last couple of days. For those who are listening who have no context here at all, the bottom line is you knew Lee Harvey Oswald. Correct. I'm, I'm part of a ever-decreasing uh, number of people who knew Lee. How I came to know is that the question, uh, Lee and Marina Oswald returned to Lee's hometown of Fort Worth in June of 62. Fort Worth happens to be my hometown, and it happens to be where I was at that time. I come from a Russian family, which was uh, is and was connected with the so-called uh, Russian community of Dallas and Fort Worth. And when Lee came back, he expected to um, get a good job that involved his knowledge of the Russian language because he had spent three years in Minsk where he met his future wife, Marina. So when he came to Fort Worth, he needed someone to certify that he could speak fluent uh, speak uh, fluent Russian. And he turned to my father who offered um, Russian language courses at the public library. He showed up at uh, my father's office. My father was a petroleum engineer. He showed up at my father's office at Continental Life Building and uh, introduced himself and said he wanted uh, a certificate that he could speak Russian and that anyone needing someone with his knowledge um, could look at this piece of paper signed by my father. My father took a Russian book off his bookshelf, gave it to Lee. Lee read it uh, fluently, and my father gave him a attestation that he could speak Russian fluently. My father was curious about Lee and invited him to lunch at the Texas Hotel, which is where JFK spent his, his last night. And when they parted, Lee gave my father his telephone number, which was his brother Robert's house, with an invitation to come over. Uh, my father and I took up that invitation, uh, and we went over and met uh, Lee and Marina, and that's how it all started. Did you like him? I would say it was, it was neutral. I did not dislike him. He did not have any traits that turned me off. 
He was reasonably polite. He did not like to speak about himself. He did speak a little bit about himself in his years in Minsk, which seemed to me to be the happiest of his, his life. So I would say neutral, definitely not a feeling of dislike. With respect to Marina, I did feel friendship towards her, and I believe it was reciprocated. We were both the same age, 21. Lee was 24. So we were uh, three young kids, sort of with um, time on our hands in that summer. And uh, that's how we started meeting. The ostensible purpose of my going over to their house on Merce on or their duplex on Mercedes Street was to uh, speak Russian with Marina because this was the height of the Cold War. There were virtually no people coming over from what was what was in the Soviet Union. So Marina was a rarity and it was an opportunity for me as, as a uh, student of Russian to get together with the two of them to talk about life in, in Russia, to talk about um, conversational things, uh, for me to take them on sightseeing and shopping trips, etc. And then one day, you're in college, you're in a class, and you turn on the TV, and he's been collared for the murder of the President of the United States. Well, talk about shocks. That was the shock of a lifetime. Indeed, we had assembled for a Russian class in the library. I was at the University of Oklahoma. A fellow student came in and said, President has been shot. Classes, no, no classes today. I went to the student union where there was a big TV. About 50 uh, students had assembled there, sat on the rug, watched Cronkite pronounce the JFK dead. Then there was a call saying they have a suspect, they're bringing him in. They bring in this, um, what appeared to me to be a short guy in a white t-shirt that was bloody and uh, a black eye and bruises on his face. And I immediately said, that's uh, Lee Oswald. At that time, I did not know Lee's middle name. So after the assassination, he came to be called Lee Harvey Oswald. I knew him as Lee. Now, you end the book with a persuasive case for Lee Harvey Oswald being the shooter, being the sole shooter, and by implication against many of the conspiracy theories that have bubbled up. But you had no inkling before it happened that this was the sort of thing to expect. How did you get from not anticipating that this was the sort of person who would do something earth-shattering to saying, well, yeah, of course he could do it. Of course, uh, when I was meeting with them regularly at their duplex, I would have said to anyone who suggested he might do something dramatic or super dramatic by killing a president, I would say, you're, you're totally crazy. However, on that uh, November 22nd, 1963, see, things seemed to fall into place. It was clear to me that he was someone who felt he was destined for greatness, that the, the world had given him a 
raw deal that uh, he was owed something. He read uh, a lot. Uh, he read a lot of biographies, and he felt that one day someone should write a biography of him. And indeed, that's what happened. So when I saw him on TV, when I was listening in the Secret Service car the next day where they'd pick me up for interrogation and listening to the uh, reports coming over police radio saying, yes, we have the rifle, the rifle it is the rifle. I had no problem believing that Lee did it and he did it alone. Uh, when I was asked about this in that car, probably around 10 or 11 o'clock the day after the assassination, I said, um, if I were to organize a conspiracy to kill a president or kill a major political figure, the last person I would recruit uh, would be Lee Harvey Oswald. Lee had no friends that I knew of. He was not a follower, definitely. He was not a leader. I don't know why anyone would follow his lead on such a thing. So although there, there were no inklings of this, I had no, no trouble accepting the proposition uh, that he did it and he did it alone. And the more I read the testimony of, that's contained in the, in the Warren, Warren Commission report, the more everything fell into place. In terms of my seeing the, the real Lee Harvey Oswald during my time with them in 62, I would say there were two instances. One, a dinner party at our house, which introduced Lee and Marina to the Dallas Russian community, where he really sort of lost it under interrogation by the Dallas Russians. And then there's an incident I describe in the book where Marina falls backwards off the porch. And I thought perhaps sustained a, a brain injury where Lee, Lee lost it again and started screaming at her and uh, so on. And I did see some signs of spousal abuse, but spousal abuse doesn't make you an assassin of a U.S. president. No, it doesn't. So you were interviewed a few times in the immediate aftermath of the assassination, and your father served as a translator for the Secret Service in its interviews with Marina Oswald, especially once Lee Harvey Oswald had himself been killed. Were you ever scared? Did you ever feel that they might think you had something to do with it, even though you knew you didn't? No. Um, when they uh, sought me out in Norman, Oklahoma, they sought me out as one of the few known associates of Lee Harvey Oswald. So. At that point, they had to rule out the fact that um, I was not in a conspiracy to kill the president. They also had to rule out my father, and I believe he convinced them rather uh, easily that he was not a part of any conspiracy because they did choose to use him for, uh, for about a five or six day period where um, Marina and Lee's mother, Marguerite, were sequestered in the Six Flags Inn. So my father saw much more of history than I did in that, in that five-day period where he was alone with the Secret Service 
Marina and Marguerite, which was a which was a, a a fiasco or a disaster, I would say. Do you or did your father ever get hate mail, strange visitors, you know, people who believe profoundly that this was a conspiracy theory, who are convinced that you're in on it because you are strongly opposed to the idea that there was a conspiracy? Well, um, if you look at um, um, book sales and book ratings, uh, it's an interesting distribution because those people who believe in conspiracies uh, give my book the lowest rating, those who don't give it the highest rating. Uh, So there is a, a... an industry out there, a conspiracy industry, which has a vested interest in there being a conspiracy. So, indeed, my father and I have been accused of being part of a so-called white Russian conspiracy, which is manifested by the fact that my father deliberately mistranslated Marina at the Six Flags Inn to shift the blame erroneously to Lee. Uh, there was a big oil conspiracy of which my father was apparently a part, and I was as well, uh, and I was listed as visiting their house 48 times, which is an exaggeration. And then there was um, there were reporters who would call up and, and uh, t- t- try to get my father to admit, yes, indeed, he was part of an oil conspiracy plot and they they were blaming lbj at the time so our family did not uh, was not uh, free of, of 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 such things and you mentioned his mother marguerite that's lee harvey oswald's mother one thing that comes across in this book or at least it did to me is that while there was clearly a lot wrong with lee harvey oswald and while he had illusions of grandeur, and while he was, for example, almost subliterate. Uh, wow, that's too strong. But but he his spelling was atrocious, his grammar was atrocious, and therefore he didn't show the, the outward signs of it. You do seem to sense in him a certain natural intelligence, uh, resourcefulness. Do you see him as someone who was led astray perhaps by... The influence of his mother. Do you, do you think this was something deep in him in, innately? I mean, how, how do you how do you view him? Well, I, I would say the most important um, contribution of the book is to show that we have grossly underestimated Lee Oswald. We have grossly underestimated him because he worked for one dollar twenty five cents an hour. He I was dyslexic. He was dyslexic, but he could read. He was dyslexic, and this caused him great difficulty in filling out forms, for example. He did not graduate from high school. So he had all the markings of a loser. But if you look at what he accomplished, if you want to call it an accomplishment, he accomplished an amazing amount, a number of things that that are due to the fact that he's very persistent. He was a pretty, he was a good planner. He had a number of traits, which I enumerate, which 
would make him the ideal assassin in a what I'd call low-tech assassination. I mean, just think of this. His equipment for the assassination consisted of a mail-order rifle, a pistol, and some bus tickets. So with virtually nothing, he succeeded in killing the most uh, heavily guarded uh, person in the world. So you don't do this if you are ignorant, an ignorant person. In fact, in, in the Bronx, when he was tested, his IQ was um, pretty good. So we, we do tend to underestimate him, and we underestimate him because of all these external factors without considering what he had accomplished in, in his uh, relatively short life. Uh, this happened in November 1963, and you met Lee Harvey Oswald and Marina Oswald in 1962. June, yes. June. It's now 2023. That's 60 years. Why did you write the book now? This is a question that I get frequently. I, I, there are really three answers to the question. The first one was our family wanted it not known that we had associated with this commie. Very spotty background. So as far as my father was concerned, as far as my mother were concerned, we would like to keep this as quiet as possible. So somehow we remained out of the newspapers. We testified, even my mother, before the Warren Commission. So it was a feeling of shame that prevented me and my father uh, from writing something back then. That's one factor and probably the most important factor. So I, I definitely could not have written anything before my parents died. The second factor was that um, I really transformed from being a, an economist to being a historian. And the more history I wrote and read, the more I came to understand that I, I was actually a, what I would call a modest eyewitness uh, to history. And it was sort of an obligation to get this done. In fact, before I wrote the book, I, I didn't really think I had that much to contribute. But then when I sat down and started writing and organizing, I decided, yes, indeed, the, there is some important information that I can impart. The third reason is the fact that uh, there's a lot of new information out there, these releases. We have uh, Lee Harvey Oswald's KGB file. We have the FBI wiretaps and so on. So there was more material to process. So those are the three reasons why it took me 60 years to, to, to write this. Do you still feel any shame? Well, this is an interesting question because when the book uh, was published, most of my friends had no idea of the story. This is something that I'd kept from them, and I just didn't want to volunteer it. I would say that was it, it still was a, a feeling of shame that, that prevented me from, from um, telling the story. So the, the common reaction was, you know, Paul, why didn't you tell me? And the answer is I told very few people. So my, my final question is, do you think that 
over time, this is going to settle down, as it were, and the findings of the Warren Commission and the narrative as told in your book will come to be accepted? Or do you think that the further we get away from this, the wilder the conspiracies will become, the more people who believe them, and the further away from the truth we're going to end up? It's the, it's the latter. The reason for this is that most people believe that if there is an event that changes history, there must be deeper forces behind it, not some welder earning $1.25 an hour who had not graduated from high school. So if indeed history cannot be changed by a welder earning $1.25 an hour, there must be something more to this. And that's not going to go away. People will, 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 will not be willing to accept the proposition that this happened sort of by circumstance, by an odd set of circumstances and so on. So my answer to your question is, if anything, it'll get it'll get more intense. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. The book is called The Oswalds. It's by Paul Gregory. It's out now, available to purchase from all good bookstores. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Paul. Thank you. I, I enjoyed it. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guest, Paul Gregory. Thank you to you for listening. Thank you to the Florida Groundhogs for having the good sense to retire somewhere around January 7th. If you like this podcast, please do leave a nice review on Apple Podcasts. If you don't like this podcast, then just stop listening. What's wrong with you? There are many other better options for you somewhere. This is America after all. See you next week.